Dateline, a campus near you. Read all about it. Press releases, articles, blogs, news feeds, rankings, books, tweets, posts, podcasts. The head spins and swims in admissions, updates, news, spin, lists, commentary, gossip. So much buzz, too much info, so many opinions. I'm here to help. When the beat is loud, I'll turn down the volume. I'm Lee Coffin, Dartmouth's Dean of Admissions. Welcome to the Admission Beat, the pod for news, conversation, and advice on all things college admissions. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Admission Beat. So the literal admission beat usually focuses on the college side of the admission process, on application volume and selectivity, preferences, trends. But in doing so, the media narrative often misses a more personal behind the scenes story, a story that plays out with cheers and tears in high schools around the world. In this episode, we spotlight today in college counseling land, and we'll talk to two colleagues who work on the other side of the desk from me, but have firsthand insights into the ups and downs of the admission cycle from the parent and the student perspectives. But first, let's go to the Admission Beat newsroom with Charlotte Albright. Hi, Charlotte. Hi there. What headlines sparked your curiosity this week? Well, because I knew we were having two college counselors on, I had been sort of hearing uh, by the grapevine that uh, there's a huge shortage of college counselors. There's a huge shortage of any kind of counselor in high school right now. But college counselors, those who just really concentrate on that task, are really in short supply. There is a, a story in Chalkbeat, which is a nonprofit online news source about higher education. It's, this story happens to be looking at Chicago, and it ran this summer. Uh, and the headline is One Counselor, 665 Students. Counselors stretched at Chicago's majority Latino schools. And it says the district is going to try to plan to spend $5 million on 64 additional counselors by 2023. So they're trying to address this. Stories like this go way back to 2018 when there was a survey showing this shortage. You went to a high school that had a shortage of college counselors. So how big is this problem? It's huge. This is a structural issue where high schools, particularly larger, not just urban, but even suburban schools like the one I attended, have a a ridiculously big ratio between student and counselor. Um, And you mentioned my, you know, it was a long time ago. I, my counselor probably had a 500 to one ratio. And when I went to see him in the fall of my senior year, he looked at my transcript, he scoffed, he said, I don't have time for the smart ones. Go back to class. You'll figure it out. And that was it. That was the sum total of college counseling for Lee um, as a first-gen college-bound student. And I did figure it out, but it wasn't because the infrastructure in my school helped me do it. And now there's lots of new infrastructure all these years later, but the fact remains in lots of public high schools, um, this resource is under utilized or not there. And you know, I think there's some urgency around if we're trying to build a larger college going cohort, if the pipeline is something we all wanna focus on, then having people in schools who are not just available, but informed about how this work unfolds. I mean, you're, you're gonna hear a conversation today with two counselors 
in independent schools who are college admission officers, and they bring a rich background to their work with students from lots of different backgrounds, but in really small places. And I think there's an urgency that this story is highlighting around how do we address this issue, um, which I think is often underreported and not visible to so many people. And I think when you go across the, not just the income spectrum, but when you're dealing with families for whom college was not something in their history, this resource becomes even more acutely important. And so um, great that this story is calling attention to it. Um, challenging because the resources in a lot of these districts are just not there. And so I think there's an opportunity to kind of rethink, well, is there a partnership colleges might make or the independent schools might make with their local overworked public schools? I don't know, but you, you put your finger on something really important. Well, and I also am pretty sure that the two college counselors that you're about to talk to are gonna be so engaging and they're gonna make the work look like something you'd want to do. So I hope that's kind of an effective yeah. even today. Well, it's it's the benefit of having somebody who's been a college admission officer in the room with you to say, okay, I'm going to walk you through this step by step and um, and give you the, the guidance gleaned from years of doing the work I do. And I think in some school districts, um, there might be some certification issues where someone coming out of a college admission office may not have the certification to be a guidance counselor. Um, there's a difference between a guidance counselor and a college counselor. And I, I think adding a role or two um, to public high schools like the one I attended would have been awesome to be able to go to someone who had a particular expertise in that part of the work, didn't serve every member of the class. But for those of us who were thinking, yeah, there's, I have another academic step beyond this, that's the resource. When we come back, we'll meet two college counselors uh, who are former admission officers. And the three of us have a really lively conversation about their day-to-day -day observations, interactions, the ups and downs, the tissues and the cheers that go along with working where they do. Um, so we'll be right back. So welcome to this week's roundtable where I'm joined by two colleagues and friends uh, from the college counseling side of our work to talk about what they see and hear and navigate and referee as college counselors. This episode is called Today in College Counseling Land, and it's inspired by the frequent posts of Sherry Geller, the co-director of college counseling at Gann Academy in Waltham, Massachusetts. Uh, she posts on Facebook regularly with witty little asides about what she's seeing and hearing. And I thought, these are hilarious and really poignant. And I wanted to invite Sherry on to kind of talk about these insights. So Sherry Geller, hello. Hi, thanks for having me. You're well, I, you're the muse of this episode. So I'm, you, I could not be doing this one without you. And as straight man to that muse, Ronnie McKnight, uh, the Associate Director of College Counseling at Paideia School in Atlanta joins us. Hello, Ronnie. Hi, guys. 
Uh, so I'm pairing Boston and Atlanta. Happily, they didn't meet in the World Series. Sherry is a bit of a baseball <laughs> nut. So that would have added a whole Red Sox Braves thing that we avoided. <laughs> um, yeah. So, um, so what's interesting about both of you, like so many college counselors, you were both college admission officers. Um, you know, Sherry uh, worked at Brandeis for 11 years and then uh, went to Dana Hall as a college counselor now at GAN, which is a Jewish day school in, in the Boston area. So you've got that double perspective. And Ronnie and I met many years ago when he was an admission officer at Presbyterian College in the 90s, uh, and then uh, an admission officer at Emory, uh, where he worked through 2012 before becoming a college counselor. It's like you go through a conversion process, like you, you go from college admissions to college counseling. And tell me about that. What's it like to take your experience as an admission officer and plug into a school setting and work so directly with kids and parents? Um, I'll jump in. I actually also worked at Northeastern for a brief time, so I had that opportunity to see a much larger school, too, and bring that perspective. But I've now been working with high school students for about 15 years, and I continue to see how much kids really struggle with the application process and how much they stress about it in ways that I never quite understood on the college side. Um, The things that we ask students to do in the application process, they say, oh, just have an interview. Well, many of them have never had an interview before. And so that's an anxiety-provoking process. I happen to think it's a very useful adult skill, um, a life skill, and there's so much good in it. But I think sometimes on the admissions side, we just make assumptions about what kids can handle and what they understand that is actually quite overwhelming to them. By contrast, I think there are times when we don't give kids enough credit (laughs) also with things that we say, oh, well, we don't want to have them write an extra supplement because that's a lot of work when really some of them look forward to have the chance to use their voice in different ways in the application process. Ronnie, what did you see when you switched from Emory? So the biggest thing that I I remember thinking when I switched over, it's, it's one, it's such an easy transition and it's delightful to do all those sorts of things that you love most about your job when you're on the college side and that you're working with families and you're working with students and you're guiding through guiding them through the process. But the thing that I noticed when I worked on the high school side is that I realized that I'm a single man that I don't have kids. And so I had worked with juniors and seniors because that's who I worked with when I worked at Emory and Presbyterian, but I had not dealt with freshmen and sophomores Though I sat in judgment of those (laughs) grades from the ninth and 10th grade, all those years when I worked on the college side and when I worked, started working on the high school side, it struck me at how young freshmen are. They are, they are oversized children and act that way. Right. (laughs) And it made me really embarrassed for all of those years of looking at transcripts and even you know, when the kids, when kids do well as a freshman, that's wonderful. But when kids kind of blossom in their sophomore and junior year, I understand that a lot better now that I work on the high school side. It was not apparent to me um, for all of those years that I worked on the college side. Yeah. I I worked at Milton for a couple of years and in admissions, not in college counseling, but I I had that same epiphany of like, oh, these are kids. And, and when they present themselves as applicants, they're you know young adults by that point. But the journey from nine to twelve has a lot of bumps, 
And I think you see those bumps up close and personal from your respective desks. And then the word, I mean, the thing that I'm always struck by when I see Sherry's posts is it's a reminder of the anxiety that bubbles, not even below the surface, above the surface of the admission process and the, the doubt that people have, um, the parental worry that envelopes itself around this work that I see but I don't feel it, I think, as directly as you do. I've also found that there are some things I really miss about admissions and other times that I find myself really critical of admissions. Oh. Um, I, when I worked in admissions, not so much was uh, uh, electronic as it is now and web-based and social media and whatever. Um, we used to send admissions decisions by mail. And so a student would get home from school and check the mail and find out what the decision was. And now there are schools that have countdown clocks that we're going to release your decision in 14 hours, 13 hours, 12 hours. Well, they can't pay attention all day that day because they're watching that countdown clock. Or schools that release decisions suddenly at one in the afternoon, students get an email saying, your decision's ready. Well, they're in the middle of math class. And so now they're checking their decision. And next thing you know, they're walking out of math to come to my office or to go call their mother or whatever they're going to do. Um, and the whole class is disrupted by that happening. And when I've mentioned this on occasion to colleagues, like it has gotten better. More schools are releasing it night and have different ways of doing it. But somebody in one admissions office said to me, well, why are they checking your email in the middle of math class? I said, have you ever met a teenager? <laughs> or, well, really, they're on their phones constantly. Or, well, we have to release them all at the same time or it's not fair to the kids in Hawaii. I said, well, but we do everything else in time zones. How is this something that in order to get everybody in a certain day, my students are hearing in the middle of math class. And it actually really frustrates me between these countdown clocks and like how we release decisions that there is such buildup, but the buildup is great for the kids who get in, although anxiety provoking along the way. But for kids that don't, there have been all this buildup and they're waiting for the confetti you described and the electronic, woo! And then all of a sudden, um, the answer is no, and they just crash. They've yeah. been so anxious and they have that letdown. They're on the verge of tears, whether they get in or don't get in. And it really um, becomes that the decision, it's, you know, you, you mentioned that I'm a sports fan, like that LeBron James, the decision that we have to watch it on TV. They become so much hung up in the decision yeah. that it takes on a life of its own in a way that I don't think is healthy. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And you know, in your intro, I forgot to mention you were, you're now the past president of the New England Association of College Admission Counselors. Uh, so about five years ago, you were yeah. our, our leader in New England. And, you know, I think in that role and in our broader national organization, I keep wondering, like, when will we all hold hands and say, we can stop this. Like, this is something we control. Um, it's not just an accident that, you know, it's happening. And how do you, I mean, social media, I think is a, is a it's a, an octopus with lots of tentacles. Um, so uh, there's some things we can't control. Um, but this weekend, you know, when, right. when a decision is released and how we also kind of reference it, you know, I think you're right, the confetti versus, especially if you're in a very selective place where there are more no's than yeses and being mindful of that and the impact it has in a high school and a, and a family. When students listen to me, one of the, my favorite things that they do, if they can find a really wonderful 
relatively safe college that has early action and they get their first decision and we're, you know, hopefully it's, we're confident that it's going to be hopefully fingers crossed a yes. Once they get that yes from one school, it's, it's a huge burden off of their shoulders. And some of the anxiety that Sherry just mentioned does dissipate a bit. It doesn't eliminate the anxiety at the, at those places where they're dying to get in. But from the general anxiety of, am I going to go to college to get that? Yes. Hopefully relatively, relatively early in the process um, is life-changing and, and not all schools have early action, but for the schools that do, if you can find a relatively safe, wonderful place that you would be happy that does give you that. Yes. It's just lovely. So, all right. So let's, let's talk about Sherry's prolific posts on Facebook. Speaking of social media. So um, I, you know, I will own up. I mean, I, I am a friend of Sherry and Ronnie on Facebook. Your posts today in College Counseling Land, they don't happen every day or even every week. There's a pattern to them that I watched it and it started in the summer. It kind of built as we moved into the fall. And it was, they were always commentary that made me smile. And sometimes on occasion, I would spit up my coffee. So, <laughs> um, so I wanted to like start, if, I've broken your post into four categories. And I just wanted to talk about these four thematic areas that seem to be on your mind as you navigate the world of college counseling. And, and I welcome Ronnie to chime in on any of these as they come up. But the first theme is parents. Um, you know, parents seem to be a source of great um, entertainment <laughs> for those of you who work in college counseling, where you're like you're developing relationships with a mom and dad, both who are you know advocates for their child and they want what's best and they've got aspirations. And you know, over the last few years, as um, as the parent group has become my peer group um, versus you know 20 years ago when I was a younger dean and they were usually closer to my parents' age. But lately, I'm like, oh. You are now my friends and relatives and siblings and coworkers, and you're you're out of control. And I can say that to them now, peer to peer, and they go, oh, oh, yeah, maybe we are. I'm like, no, you definitely are. And I wouldn't have said that before when I was younger, but now that I'm actually older than some of the parents, I'm starting to pull that that Yoda moment where I'm like, okay, let's pause. So parents are a topic. So before, so um, <laughs> you had a post where. Um, you said um, parent questionnaire. So I'm guessing you ask parents to fill out a questionnaire uh, describing their child and their aspirations. Exactly. Um, and the question says, what do you most want a college admission counselor to know about your child? Um, and the answer was, although my daughter has shown progress with academics and confidence through high school, she sets low expectations for herself and does not push herself to do more. And your comment then was, I think you misread the question. <laughs> so that was just a really funny one where I, you know, I thought that was charming. You also had one where you, uh, again, parent of a junior, I tried to teach my son the basics of computer science. It did not go well. I think you would say I was annoying and I was annoyed. <laughs> so like as you're managing parents, I mean, that's kind of this hidden part of the job, isn't it? Like you've got the student and they're your charge. You know, you're the counselor, but the parent is very much part of the work you're doing. Yeah, and they're such an important part. And it's nice to be at a school that's a very community-oriented place where I can develop really nice relationships with the parents. But I feel also age-wise a little bit of what you said, that 
I used to really, when I started working in high schools, working with parents was one of my greatest anxieties. What are they going to say? What are they going to know? I'm glad that they trust me, but what if I say the wrong thing? And I really carried a lot of um, fear <laughs> at some times. And then as I've also become more their age um, and also just having more experience working with them, I really place much more value, despite the fact that I sometimes have these funny posts, but about how much every parent, just a reminder over and over again, how much every parent just wants to do right by their kid and have their kid be successful. And one of the questions on that questionnaire is to students is what do your parents expect of you? Um, and oh my goodness, probably three quarters of the students at some point in that answer say something like my parents just want me to be happy. Yeah. And we could go on and on about what that means but that's really where the parents are coming from in saying these things like, please just help me and help my kid get into their favorite school because we just want them to be happy. And do you think being happy in this kind of admission construct with kind of the admission beat that kind of swirls around us, championing prestige outcomes a lot, you know, the, the spotlight tends to fall on places like where I work and, um, and kind of the storytelling there to me is always, that is success. Success means you grab one of the, a seat in one of those classes. And, and is that what happiness means? For some students and families, yes. You know, when we talk about fit, I like to talk about things that don't involve prestige and selectivity and let's find the right type of place. Is it a place that's in New Hampshire and in the woods or is it in the downtown of a major city? And there's such a big difference. But for some families, part of finding fit is finding a place that has a certain level of prestige that also may have those other things. Yeah. And Ronnie, I'm guessing in your community, that's similar. It is. And, and Sherry's message is the right message to, to reassure your child that there are just so many wonderful places in the world and that we just want you to find a good place that's a good fit where you're happy, period, right? The, the other extreme, there, there are the families that put a lot of pressure on students and, and that's unfortunate. There's an in-between that I want to make parents aware of in that some parents confuse encouragement with a specific institution. If, if I think, Sherry, I really think, like, Sherry, you're awesome. You, you really belong at Dartmouth, right? Like, you're amazing. You belong at Dartmouth. I think the parent sees that as encouraging Sherry to do her best and that she belongs someplace delightful and wonderful like Dartmouth. For the student, all they hear is like, crap, my my mom thinks, my dad thinks I should, like Dartmouth is the standard. And if I don't reach that standard, then I failed. And so that general message of just finding a place that's happy is a, is a much more, it's a much safer message than encouraging students to, you know, everyone should push themselves, but to to name the places that where they, where the parent thinks it's like, you, be, you belong that that certain one place just creates infinite amount of pressure for the yeah. for the kids. Yeah. Well, and it gets to a post Sherry made uh, last week. Uh, it said yesterday afternoon in college counseling land, me on the phone with a parent of a student who has had some quote ups and downs. Um, quote, I'm really happy with the group of schools she's applied to. She did her research really well. Parent, my fear is that she'll get into all of them and realize that she didn't aim high enough. Me. I don't think that's a fear you'll have to deal with. <laughs> <laughs> like that one got 67 likes. 
And I have to say that was one that I guffawed. I mean, that's when I said, oh my God, I have to have, I have to have Sherry Geller on this podcast. Because, like, how do you navigate that? Like that, like the nuance of that. But so that's one that, that happened to be apparent that I could say something like that. Sometimes those quotes are really what I kind of say in my head and wish I could have said out loud. Um, this is a family that I've had a lot of conversations with about those ups and downs and about what their students list looks like and about what success in the application process might look like. And I did think that that comment was um, unreasonable. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's because you got one of your friends posted, I'm going through the process with my son right now. And I see a little bit of myself in all of your oblivious parents. Um, it's humbling. So you didn't yeah. call oblivious. That was this other person saying, but you know, it's like, do you find it hard for parents to, to see the admissions landscape with any objectivity? I mean, do they just get caught in admissions circa 1990 when they were in high school? Um, both. I, some, some see it very well. Some see, only see what they knew in 1990. Um, and some colleges haven't changed that much and some have changed so tremendously um, in terms of not only admission criteria, but what kind of institution they are, what their school's mission is, how large the school is, what their campus looks like, things that the parents might have some image that just is completely outdated. Um, I'm in a community where virtually all of our parents have gone to college, often their parents have gone to college. So I'm all, I also have a little bit of a skewed view and a very well-educated um, population. Our parents also will call me with, did you see the article in the, you know, fill in the blank off in the New York Times, but whatever publication. Um, and so they're very well read and they think they're very aware, but where sometimes that awareness of what's going on in the world is always that sense of, oh, but you didn't mean me, right? That's going to happen. Oh, that school's going to reject 92% of the students, but not my student. Yeah. You know, my student's going to be one of those 8% who get in. So there's some of that. Yeah, um, let me pull that string a little more though, because you you just put your finger on the name of this podcast, which is the admissions beat. And so parents are reading stories in the New York Times, you say the Washington Post, all of them. What ha like what happens in your inbox when those stories get posted? Um, it, for me, it kind of depends on the story. Sometimes nothing, um, but. Sometimes I get questions about, I just read or I just heard, or did you see? Sometimes a parent will just send me an article and say, did you happen to see this? Sometimes that's really helpful. Other times I laugh because I feel like my admissions community of friends has been buzzing about this for three days. And <laughs> of course I saw the article, um, but that really varies. Yeah. Um, it also varies what kind of publication and how prominent this story is when, um, when sort of nationwide stories break, I hear about them. Sometimes there's something that's a little bit more local that I might hear or I might not. Okay. Um, so continuing the prestige thing to the student side of this. So you had a post in September from, um, from you and a student, kid, Ms. Geller, I am so stressed, all in caps. Me, why, kid? Everyone is telling me that I won't get into super highly selective Ivy League institution in parentheses, me, awkward silence. Um, I hope I filled that silence more quickly than I might have on Facebook, but that's a very real conversation that the students come 
And of course, all they want is reassurance, but they also want me to say, oh, of course you're gonna get in. Why would they say that to you? But as a counselor, I can't say that. Um, I can't say that to our strongest students because of what the acceptance rate and application process looks like. And I certainly can't say it to a student that I feel looking at their stats and what I know of a college that it's pretty unlikely they're going to get in. So as counselors, we kind of do this dance of wanting to be their cheerleaders and their supporters and their advocates. And we're all of those things, but also having to be the realists. And I tell students and families sometimes that that's really our job, that I came up with this way of thinking about it, that it's the parent role to be the optimist and the student role to be the idealist. But it's really our role then to be the realist. And that's a hard position to be in. I love that trio. Thank you. You're welcome to use it. I just wrote it down. Because <laughs> it's, and what, and then I guess the admission officer is the pragmatist. Sure. <laughs> yeah, because we have to manage scarcity and kind of make it all work. Um, but yeah, you have this temptation. And I would, Ronnie, I would think it's hard when you're sitting there in your office and a student comes in and they're like, I'll use Dartmouth. I'm applying to Dartmouth. And you know, from your wisdom of many years that this application is not going to be successful um, in that, that competitive construct. Like what, do you let it go forward? Do you try and redirect? I mean, what's the, what's the, I mean, this is for seniors who might be listening or juniors who are just starting to roll along and get their, you know, they're you know, excited about everything is possible. And the seniors are in this really like, okay, I got to make some choices now, but how do you redirect or do you just let it go and, and try and make sure you have backup plans? So I'm rarely optimistic. Right. I, <laughs> I, 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 I agree with Sherry. Like it's my job to worry about kids and to make sure that they have options and to make sure that they have a safety net anytime. Well, across the spectrum, whether they're looking at highly selective places or just, you know, just an average student, anytime they're looking at reach schools, I, I work on the premise that if it's a reach school for a student, then work on the assumption that this could be a no, right? And they may be wonderful and they may be completely appropriate for the school. And so it could easily be a yes, but work on the assumption that it will be a no or that it could be a no. And then to have a really nice balanced list where you have places that are reasonable and places that are relatively safe so that, that you always have a safety net and that there's something exciting about that institution that you do get into that you're going to love and be happy and be excited about. And so I... For every student, I work on that sort of assumption, and I try not to be a gatekeeper. And I, there are times when I think like there's no way the student is going to be admitted to X Y Z school, but I try not to be the person that tells them not to apply. I want them to be realistic about their chances and what may have happened at that institution with our applicants in the past, or to be aware of the selectivity. And so I want them to be educated but I want that to ultimately be their choice because I don't want them to be 50 years old and say, you know, if only Ronnie McKnight had allowed me to apply, I would have gotten in. If they want to reach for the stars and gun for something unrealistic, as long as their list isn't like 20 schools or something crazy, then I don't have a problem with that um, as long as it's a reasonable amount of work for them. So, all right, let me switch on Sherry's musings to the student part of of your um, docket. So you wrote, today in college counseling, this is from Halloween. Today in college counseling land, I'm working on a recommendation, not due tomorrow. Questionnaire, what do you want a college to know about you? Student, I hope I won't come across as bland. Yeah. Bl- yeah like, bland, funny like, and a little sad. Yeah, like, 
like what tell me about that worry like because I've heard students say I don't want to brag about myself but like what's what's gnawing at this poor kiddo about being seeming bland kids hear over and over and over again the messages of you have to distinguish yourself and you have to be you know be your own person and and you need to stand out and I think some kids have just such great stories and they're really wonderful humans and yet they're so afraid that but I'm not special and I'm not I don't stand out and why is a college going to pick me over someone who they perceive to be more special or to stick out and that's the part that's both funny but sad is getting caught up in um, teenage angst about how others will view them. And probably, although I can't remember the student, which might be a good thing, but although I don't remember whose recommendation I was working on, chances are it was a student who's anything but bland that probably filled every line in the activities section of their application and wrote a great essay and really has lots of friends and does well in school and all sorts of things, but yet, their perception is, oh, but somebody else might be more interesting and a college might like that more. Yeah, that's my worry as an admission officer, as a dean, like when the press releases go out. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, we, on the college side, we speak in superlatives. Best ever, most ever, lowest ever, all these superstars. And, you know, if you're a high achieving good kid, you know, can you look in the mirror and understand either he's describing me like I, I I mean I try and introduce my class with an emphasis on some of the more qualitative things they do like here are the people not just the accomplishments that bring together a community um, on my campus that you know they've all done well in high school that's a common denominator but um, you're just good interesting people too but that I mean that's a hard narrative to hold I think in this space because um, it sounds so like Hallmark. They also read after, and obviously what students do in college that lead to their eventual careers, um, some of that may have started in high school, or it might be that they discovered something new in college, but when they hear that the CEO of wherever, or the first person to go into space, you know, they hear things that are also such superlatives about things people have accomplished. And then a college is saying, oh yes, we're so proud. That's one of our alumni. The kids look and say, well, how could that ever be me? Right. And maybe that person who's now a superstar was always a superstar or maybe not. But the kids, when they're only 17, don't have the ability to filter. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, that makes me think of, you know, at the last election, I saw a post from Ronnie that Senator John Ossoff is the first Ooh. U.S. senator to be produced from the Padilla School. And I said, yeah, that's great. So, you know, there's it makes absolutely, um, you know, that that Padilla would cheer the election of of a U.S. senator from its alumni, from its a young alumni group, nevertheless. But anyway, I, I get that. It's it's this tension between promotion and and sort of the reality, you know, the view book versus the yearbook, like, you know, day to day. I, I always lament, like, you know, Utopia College hasn't been founded yet. So, you know, we all, we all tell you really rosy stories about ourselves, but you know, you got to live here, you got to do your laundry, you know, things are going to, it's going to rain. Um, but, you know, on the bland, kind of coupled with the bland, I, I chuckled at a couple of insights you shared about students where I kind of wrote, kids say the darndest things, you know, that, um, you know, one of them said in response to your survey, um, the question was, please describe yourself as a student. And the student said, decently smart and hardworking. So I thought, okay, that's like a very grounded kid. Another one, said um, 
the question was, what do you do in your free time? And a senior wrote, I like to rest. I love that. <laughs> um, and, and those are the kind of things like, I don't see that part. Like, you know, I like to rest. I just, I just love the, the honesty and the earnestness of that. Um, this was, this one I love too. Um, where do you see yourself in five years, student? I see myself eating a flaky pastry in a small cafe somewhere where you can smell the sea salt. I loved that one. I love that too. It's like, like such personality just from that little quip. Not even a quip, it's just that little insight into what that student sees as a future moment. It was lovely. And so different from so many students who answer a question like that by saying, oh, in five years, I'll be a senior in college, or I hope to be applying to law school, or maybe I'll have my first job, or whatever they're thinking about five years out. Her answer said so much about who she is as a thinker um, and who she is in terms of like just the kind of language and image and yeah. It just gives so much insight. Yeah. Well, it's personality comes through. And I, you know, I would say to a student writing an essay, like bring that same voice forward because that lovely aspiration, such a human thing and um, evocative in some ways. I don't know. I, I really liked that one. I also loved this one. Uh, uh, just, I think this was just yesterday. Um, student wrote, my interests range from pottery to history. Math and I have never been friends. However, we can remain civil. Yes. <laughs> but my favorite college counseling land post ever is that I was sitting with a family and the student had gone over spring break to quite a few colleges. Um, and I just didn't have time to hear about every single one where we had this brief meeting with the parents. So I said, is there any theme you could share with me um, in the interest of time? And then we can come back to individual schools another day. And the student said, you know, I really liked the ones that had a buffet. <laughs> and they would never tell you, like, I loved the one, what do you do in your free time? I like to rest. Not only was it honest, it's just so necessary. <laughs> like it was so practical instead of, oh, I need, you know, and if they were in an interview though, they wouldn't tell you they'd like to rest. If you said to the same student, what do you do in your free time? I'm sure you'd heard about you hear about reading and hiking and biking and starting a club and anything else that they think an admissions person would want to hear. But mm -hmm. the reality is that I was actually really glad the student said that he likes to rest because yeah. it's kind of an important thing to do. Yeah, totally. another, another thing that gave me some insight into how that student thinks. Yeah. And so the last theme that emerges from your posting is the task of writing letters of recommendation. And, you know, I, a recurring theme uh, over and over. And it's not just Sherry Geller. Um, everyone I know who is a college counselor goes through this March from kind of late summer to usually November 1st. What's the magic of November 1? Like if I think if I had a circle of date on a college counselor's calendar, that would be your, your hell point. Why is November 1st so hard? Well, just it, the school I'm at, um, a very, very high percentage of our students apply somewhere early decision or early action. And so many colleges due dates are November 1st. And even some students that might have a November 15th or a later deadline, they're so swept up with their friends and wanting to apply by November 1st. And then they want me to also send in the pieces I'm responsible for, even if it's earlier than it needs to be. Yeah. Um, but at a lot of the private schools in my part of the world and Ronnie's may be different. Um, 
but we're seeing at least two thirds, some schools, three quarters or 80, 85% of students doing something by November 1st. So we have this crunch time. There are many counselors that write recommendations over the summer. Some of us do more of our writing in the fall. Some even do them the spring before, but I feel that I write better recommendations when I'm into the fall and I have spent more time with the students. Plus for me, pressure tends to be a good thing. And I think I just write better when I got that deadline coming as much as I'm exhausted and making myself probably my friends crazy. Well, and it's because you on October 1st, you wrote, I woke up today, saw that it was October and felt my blood pressure go up. Yeah. <laughs> but then you wrote uh, November 2nd in pajamas, under a blanket, on the couch, computer in its bag, 5.55 p.m., November 2nd, looks like we made it. And of all of your posts, that one got the most likes. <laughs> Probably from all my college counseling friends across the country. Yeah. So clearly, I mean, it's a lot of work, but recommendation writing is important. I mean, it's, it's one of those elements of a file that you produce. Uh, it goes into the secondary school report along with a transcript and a profile. So your letter, you know, your description of student, place, purpose, trends, who, um, that that's like a key element of the file. And, and you both take this really seriously. I mean, it, it's a lot of work, but I, you know, I know your letters are really thoughtful. Thank you. I'm in awe of people who can just kind of spit them out. And some people really have a gift for like knowing the student and just being able to say what they want. I do. Part of these posts is that I am reading through so much information. I read over teacher comments that they share with our students. I have information of these questionnaires from kids and parents. I talk to the kids quite a bit. I talk to their advisors. And then I try to distill almost like a research project and a data collection. I try to distill that all into what's hopefully a one-page letter. Sometimes I go a little over. But I spend so much time per student that um, I do hope they matter. And even if they don't, I feel that that's what I can do for my kids is that piece of advocacy in this process. I can help them one-on-one, but what they're most anxious about is what are the colleges going to know about me and what are they going to think about me? And so I see it as my job to help with that part that you have the student's own words, Perhaps you've gotten to meet them. You certainly get to know them a little bit through their essays and applications, through their teacher recommendations with, with people who see them every day. And then I just try to take that four-year picture and um, share it with you and your colleagues as much as I can. And what do you do when you get a student who responds to the questionnaire? So the question was, what are five words or phrases you would use to describe yourself? And the student wrote, unhealthy, intelligent, socially introverted, awkward, socially complex. Like, how do you write that letter? <laughs> Reach out to teachers to see what else we can learn about them. Yeah. Or do you say all those things? I mean, isn't that sort of an authentic way of representing? If a if, if student's saying, here's me, like, do you just introduce the person and say, like, here's this quirky, awkward, introverted fellow? I wish that I could, but I feel like I can't. Yeah, you can't. I always sort of have this lens of, like, our letters are confidential, But if someone were, if a student were to see this letter or if a parent were to see this letter, would they be calling me out saying, because you wrote this, my kid didn't get in. And I know that that would never happen and that would never be the case. But whenever I have to write about a more challenging situation or a student that may have some awkwardness or whatever, I I just have to think through that way of 
how am I portraying the student in their best light, but also in an honest light so I can sleep at night knowing that my letter has integrity and then I'm not having helping a student get admitted and then they get to a college and you meet the student you say wait this isn't the person you introduced us to yeah yeah oh that fine line yeah no the integrity of the process the authenticity that that's really important so let's end on that note so today in college counseling land a wild wacky always fun moment as your office fills with people uh ronnie and sherry are going to join me in the inbox section with charlotte so we will be right back So uh, Lee, because you have all been kind of living in cyberspace with Sherry's Facebook posts, I thought it would be interesting to kind of comb through social media threads that uh, parents seem to be, as you say, pulling at. And one of them um, is about the current high school uh, class of 2025 freshmen in high school right now. College class of 29. College class of 29, and the parents are asking, so when should you start thinking about planning for college? I mean, is there such a thing as thinking too early about it? Ronnie, too early? We always remind, we always remind kids early on that the most important thing to do is just to pay attention to high school and to do well in high school, right? So if you're the parent of a freshman or sophomore, the, the most important thing is just for them to be aware and be engaged and be tied in with their high school education. If the students are excited about the process though, then sure, you know, if freshmen and sophomores want to start exploring colleges, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. I think a lot of families explore places kind of organically at first. They're traveling somewhere, parents have a work trip somewhere, and they bring the child along and they start visiting schools, whether it's just looking around or something official. And then by the time the summer between sophomore and junior year and definitely by that junior year, that's when things begin to get more official and they take campus tours and do information sessions. But for now, just be a high school student. So much of the admission process is based upon your success in high school. So paying attention to high school, doing your very best and challenging yourself, that's always going to be the most important thing beyond anything else. Yeah. My wisdom on that is I've in this mindfulness space trying to be like, let me live today and not keep thinking about what am I doing four years from now or two years from now or next month? Just like, what am I doing today and this week? And, and I think high school, you know, it goes quickly. And, you know, that journey from nine to 12 has a lot of really interesting moments in it. And just enjoy it. Be a kid. Like, like um, don't always think about how's this going to look on the common application um, four years from now. Sherry, I have a question for you just to jump in. Um, is one that I didn't mention in the roundtable. So from today in college counseling, you um, had an exchange about teacher recs. And you said, um, you said, would Mrs. XYZ be a good person to write a recommendation for you? And the student said, I think so. In her class, when I have side conversations, I'm not disruptive to anyone else. <laughs> it's really funny. But my question is, um, who should write a teacher rec? Like if you're a senior and you're in the last steps of filling out your application right now, um, what's, and particularly given the juniors teachers were often in a Zoom classroom last year or a hybrid classroom, what's, what's the advice about teacher recs um, and who? We happen to have been in person. So our take on that wasn't so different, but I also think that for current 
seniors, the advice in some schools might be a little bit different. But in general, my, um, my advice is to think about junior teachers that have had the student for the whole year, so really have gotten to know them well. In places where the, the teacher has really seen the student be successful. And what I have to remind the students is that doesn't mean getting an A. It might mean that there's been significant growth. It might mean that there's been really significant interest and participation and engagement in the class, regardless of the grade, but that the teacher really gets to know the student and therefore can talk about the student in um, inauthentic ways. Um, many colleges that many of our students apply to require two teacher recommendations. And there's this myth that it has to be someone from math and science and then someone else from the humanities. And there are a few colleges that require that, although very few. More often, I just tell students to think about who knows them in different ways, where they're using different parts of their brain. And maybe one teacher can talk about participation and engagement, but another teacher can talk really about collaboration or about strength in writing or growth from something that was really difficult and going for extra help and learning new things. So sometimes our students will um, not have the right junior year teacher and wait until the fall of senior year, but with early deadlines, if that's the case, they really, I tell them that they then have to take extra steps to really get to know that teacher and make sure that she knows them. Charlotte, what else? Here's the question. How can a college counselor effectively promote a rigorous curriculum when the school doesn't offer AP classes in all areas? I think a lot of families don't know the sorts of information that high schools provide. And every high school in the United States and abroad for that matter, when they send a transcript, they also send some information about the high school, which explains what was available and what, you know, what the most demanding courses happen to be. And so if you're at a school that doesn't have advanced placement or if you don't have IB or if you don't have a, some sort of standardized curriculum, we still relay that sort of information to colleges so that they can be informed and you know, what, what's always reassuring for me is that even big places that have really massive, relatively quick admission processes, they still seem to have the ability to take that into consideration. Like Sherry, we're at a school, I'm at a school that doesn't offer extensive APs, but we do have advanced classes that are as difficult as APs. And so we relay that information to colleges and colleges take that into consideration. The other thing, you know, when we write letters of recommendation, talking about where the student fits in the context of the high school and their curriculum is also one of the things that we do in our letters. And so both in what we send and in what we write, we try to make sure that's very clear to a college as they navigate the review process. Yeah, I think there's a worry among parents that schools like GAN and Paideia that don't have um, a lot of honors AP labels on courses that somehow there's a disadvantage there. And, and when I get that question, I say, there's no disadvantage. To Ronnie's point, every high school offers its own curriculum and we, we see what's available, how is it taught, when can a student who's advanced get into a more rigorous curriculum that sets up success in our curriculum. But if APs are not there, they're not there. If honors courses are not there, they're not there. Um, and we move school to school and and evaluate it accordingly. So I wanna close, I have one last question. Um, early action, early decision outcomes will be in the wind this week. So in a really timely question from me to the two of you, what advice would you give our senior friends out there if the decision comes back a defer 
or a no? How to proceed? Whenever a student gets a no, and Sherry, you and I think just alike, and so I suspect you're this way as well. As hard as that can be, sometimes it's just better to know that the process at that school has ended so that mentally the student can move on to other options. There's still plenty of time to make regular decision applications, and that's your task for the next two or three weeks before the January deadlines begin to hit. Um, and so for schools that do send, like some schools defer a good bit, and some schools are pretty decisive and say yes or no. And for the schools that say no, it's not a terrible thing, um, just because it's better to know and to go ahead and, and to move on sometimes. I remind students that it's okay to kind of grieve a little bit. Some of them have been holding on to a wish or a dream or an idea, and it's okay to be sad and wish things were different. But I also know that in the end, even if they can't quite see it yet, that they're going to end up in a home that is going to be really good. Lee, can I add one more thing? For, for the kids that are about to get yeses, one of the things that we have had to remind students um, in the act of celebrating is to be very sensitive about what's going on with all of your peers. And though you may have gotten a yes, a lot of your friends didn't get a yes just now. And so to celebrate, to celebrate appropriately mm -hmm. with your closest friends and with your family, but maybe to keep the celebration a little subdued, just out of respect for the kids that were really optimistic about getting positive decisions that didn't. And so even for the kids that get yeses, celebrate and celebrate with mom and dad and siblings and with your best buddies, but, but maybe not make it as public as you might want just out of respect for the other kids in your class. Yeah. I would say that for parents as well, that that's a good tip. Um, sometimes parents put things on social media that they're so excited, but their parent peer group um, may have many people in it that are dealing with um, disappointment and sadness or confusion. And it's really hard to see so many people so excited when you're just not. So I agree, having some celebration is very appropriate and it's a really big moment and a wonderful um, time of year for some kids, but recognizing that it also is a really challenging time for others. Yeah, well, on that poignant note, I think we will, the sun sets on today in college counseling land. Um, this was fun, I knew it would be. Uh, thanks, Ronnie and Sherry, uh, for joining me. Thanks, Sherry, for framing these um, observations in such a delightful way that it attracted my curiosity to say, hey, let's talk about this in the podcast. Uh, to all of you, if you have questions for a future episode, send them to admissionsbeat at dartmouth.edu, and we will work them into a future episode. For now, this is Lee Coffin and Charlotte Albright signing off from Dartmouth College. See you soon.